Welcome back to the Vine Conversations podcast. Today, it's my joy to welcome a new friend, uh, Dr. Richard Langer, and he is a professor at Biola University. Dr. Langer is a professor of biblical and theological studies and director of the Office of, for the Integration of Faith and Learning. We're here to talk about um, Dr. Langer's new book that he co-wrote with uh, Joanne Jung, Dr. Jung. And it's called The Call to Follow, and the subtitle is Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership. That's an intriguing title. That's a um, a provocative subtitle as well. And as I was reading your book, Rick, it just dawned on me that I don't think I've ever heard a human being utter the phrase, I aspire to be a great follower. And, and you guys are writing a book commending being great followers. And so maybe we could just start here. Like what in your mind and, and in what you're trying to uh, persuade people of through your book, what does it mean to be a great follower? Yeah. So, and I appreciate you actually phrasing the question that way, because I think that's the right way to ask it, because depending on how you answer that, You've answered the other question about why would anyone aspire to be a follower? Right. So if a follower is a sheep, if a follower is a lemming, if a follower is a person without their own will who just blindly obeys whatever they're told, then the idea that no one aspires to be a follower is the most natural thing in the world. Who would want to be that? Right. But on the other hand, if a follower is a person who's fiercely committed to a mission, has a crystal clear vision of what that is understands himself as wanting to organize their life around serving that mission and realizes one day that the best way for me to do that is in conjunction with some other people. And one of those other people is probably going to be a guy who's leading the charge because I'm not necessarily either inclined to, appointed to, or have the opportunity to be the leader. But I'm all in on this mission and I'm all in on this program. And so, yeah, I'm good to go. Um and that the logic of that, I think, is the thing I want people to begin to, to embrace is to say, you know, this is a missional thing that just observes that almost everything good and meaningful that human beings do, we do together. We, yeah. we do as part of a broader project. And you can't have a band if everyone's going to be the drum major, right? right. I mean, where's right. the music? Right. So everybody else in the band is supposed to be following the the drum major <laughs> right in a marching band so yeah. if we can't be a follower and have no vision for it we we, we get very low expectations because we don't think followership is really a thing yeah um no one would aspire to it so you know that's kind of the rub but that issue of saying man followers are people with an, a, a firm commitment and vision of a mission they're committed to that and committed in such a way that they'll join with others to fulfill it um boy yeah, that's powerful. I mean, that's that's very intuitive. Obviously, I think part of the the challenge is maybe just the the language we use is is kind of loaded. And I think of this when it even comes to parenting um, or talking about kids. We'll say this person is naturally a leader, and this person is more of a follower. 
And when we use that word follower in reference to kids, we oftentimes think of as easily manipulated or just willing to go where the leaders go. And oftentimes kid leaders are bad leaders, right? Um, doing foolish yeah. things. And I, you know, I, we say to our kids and parents, I've got four kids. And when they were little, you know, we wanted to train them up to, you know, you don't want to be a follower in the sense of just do whatever someone else is doing at school that might be negative. Yeah. Um, and so that language is, I think, just kind of loaded into our cultural context some ways. And your book's really helping us deconstruct that definition and just in, infusing a definition that's that's much more helpful. And I, I wanted to capitalize on what you said about mission. Being a great follower means I'm sold out for the mission. Whereas the opposite of that might be some negative things, I would imagine. Like I just worship the leader or you could come up with other yeah. things. Is that kind of on the right track? Yeah, that no, that's exactly right. Uh, there's two things that I really want to uh preclude with that kind of a description of followership and one is exactly this just blind attachment to a leader yeah where i'm just like oh i worship this person these people can go off the rails and i'm just committed to following so i'll follow them right off the rails and that's where the lemming analogy becomes so apt is that the first one goes off and everybody else follows without even thinking about it yeah the other one is kind of the posture of passivity where I don't have anything to do until the leader tells me to do something. And a follower is kind of like, hey, I am on board. I'm zealous. I'm energetic for this mission. And I'm really looking to have my efforts coordinated with others, perhaps directed by others. I really do think there should be a sense of deference to a leader that is part of fellowship. You aren't just merely peers. You have a leader that has some kind of special authority, special vision, special, um, you know, appointment for doing that, that you're happy to acknowledge. But when you get up in the morning, you're not sitting there passively waiting to be told to do something. You're saying, I, I understand I have some boundaries and now I'm owning those and, and running with them. Yeah, that's beautiful. What advice would you give to me or someone like me who's a pastor and uh, I am a leader and I have unique authority um, under under the authority of our elders here. But I mean, I'm reading your book and I'm thinking, I want to be a part of an organization like this. And what is the responsibility of leaders to cultivate good followers so that you're not turning into some wacky cult leader, <laughs> um, but you still have uh, the structures of authority that, that the Bible prescribes? But yeah, what does it mean for leaders to help cultivate good followers that are flourishing? And and yeah, let me just ask you that. What what advice would you give to me or someone like me? Yeah, so I think there's kind of uh, two two sides. That one is to you relative to your organization, your board, your own authority structure, because you're always you're a leader, but you're also under authority, right? Exactly. We, we don't we don't live in a world where we have autonomous authority. Right. Um, and one of the things, if you were to look at kind of some of the issues that have come up with Mark Driscoll or Ravi Zacharias, and we unpack just a little bit of this in the yep. book, mainly by way of sort of illustrating an issue. I, the uh, little subtitle I gave this one section was, we need to have bylaws, not bylaws. <laughs> yeah. And... 
the the issue if you listen to the podcast that ct did on on mars hill yeah um one of the f- long segments was exactly an issue was talking about bylaws and a couple of the guys on the board who'd had a lot of experience with organization they were attorneys or other people who were in leadership and drafted bylaws as part of their job were kind of thinking oh well this is a thing that i should be you know, leaning in on this. Right. It's kind of like if you're the accountant and you, the budget comes through, you figure I better ante up here. Yeah. And they had done that with the bylaws. They came back and they suddenly became kind of pariahs. They were asked to leave the board or whatever the details were. But you could see this issue of saying, in this case, the leadership it, it did not seem to want to have bylaws that sure. were meaningful and actually guidance. And this is one of the things I think for pastors and leaders, the stronger the leader, the more bylaws and boards and things like that can seem irritating. Right. The more successful the leader, the more all of the people in the pew who aren't on boards are just celebrating the fact that everything's going great. Right. And so one of the disciplines I'd strongly encourage you know leaders to have is a discipline of saying, I will cultivate, respect, and honor the bylaws of our organization. I will respect the complexities of working this out in the context of having a board and people to whom I report. I won't just want to do everything I can do because you know what? Life isn't like that. Yeah. So learning to kind of discipline your own desires to say, I'm going to, I will be subordinate to those who I'm in authority and I will create a, a kind of a culture of respect for that yeah. That you'll then expect others to grant you, even as you grant that to the board and others around you that you're that you're dealing with. So that whole side of it is, I think, I think for you to be thinking that you know the the leader to be thinking on a continuing basis. Wait, I need to see myself first as a follower, yes, and then second as a leader, yes. Um, and that's one of the big things we make a point of in the book. We have whole section even with Jesus himself right. modeling followership, which seems counterintuitive, but you really do find it. So that's the one big side of it. The other side of it is with the people that who are who are reporting to you, a lot of it really is a sense of respect and uh, you know kind of expectation that they will be delivering. And if you see passivity, if you see people waiting for you to speak, or you know I don't know what to do until Zach tells me. Right. Um, that's when you begin to say, "Wow, I've created a culture of passivity." by my practices of leadership. Mm -hmm. And so at that point to say, man, we need to work on this because Mm -hmm. I don't know everything. I don't want to know everything. Right. And I don't want to assume I'm the best at everything. So let's have our best people doing the best thing. And that means I'm going to have to respect them within their own sphere and they should be working like they're expecting Zach will show up and expect them to have something done. So we better figure out how to do it. You know, that that kind of a posture. So there's probably a way that if I am, or if not, I hope it's not me. I don't think it's me, but like if any leader is too control heavy, um, has to be involved in everything, it's hard to have good followers. Another way to say it might be just different people with different gifts in the organization flourishing because you're just putting a stranglehold on on every little thing that you have your hands in that, that isn't necessary. So people that are doing different things that are following your leadership can't, can't really flourish in that way. And that makes sense. Yeah. 
So that's that's definitely one way that works is, you know, because of being controlling, everybody else is like, well, he's got the wheel. So, you know, I don't right. need to worry about steering. Here's right. the other thing that really is destructive is um, what you might call random moments of control. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the best illustration I've, I've heard of this, it, it actually came from a different context, but it works great here, is uh, this uh, friend who had a dog. They had a big two-acre property. They had a dog. And the dog would go running around everywhere. And they were like, oh, we got to do something with the dog. But they didn't want to build a big fence everywhere because they liked the property. They had a nice view. They didn't want a right. fence there. And one of their friends says, oh, here's the thing you do. Just get one of these electric shock collars right. um, that you put on the dog. And then when the dog crosses over the place that they aren't supposed to go, they get a shock. And the dog's like, oh, I right. shouldn't do that. And so they come back to where they belong. And they thought, oh, that sounds great. So about two days later, put the this shock collar on the dog. Two days later, they come out and the dog is sitting here whimpering in the middle of this two acre lot right, right. because the dog has no idea when it's going to get shocked. Right. So it had a huge amount of freedom, but it had random shocking. Right. And because of that, it just could practice. It could enjoy none of its freedom. It, it was totally dysfunctional. I think that's the other thing that happens when people say, oh, yeah, you guys need to do what you want. And then they do something that you disagree with and you, you know, kind of smack them down or call them out or don't support them if they get in trouble. Right. Then they suddenly realize, oh, wow, I really don't have the freedom that I've been, you know, advertised. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's the flip side of that problem. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And I wanted to we're kind of getting more in the weeds than I than I wanted to. But let's just keep going with it. Um, Because <laughs> uh, I want I want to think about your book at a, at a more 30,000 foot view. And this is maybe more implication. But let's just, let's just go with it. Um, well, hey, there is Dr. Jung. We're going to uh, add Dr. Jung to our conversation here. Hello, Dr. Jung. Hi, Zach. My apologies. I just came from another back-to-back thing, so, so I'm, I'm so sorry. It's okay. We are, um, we're just, uh, we're really informal on our podcast, and uh, <laughs> and we're recording, and we're going for it. So, um, <laughs> nice to meet you, and um, the people of the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin are looking forward to hearing from you and your great work in, uh, in your book, The Call to Follow. So, we were just talking about... Um, you know, what does it mean for leaders to help create a culture that where followers can flourish? And one of the things that I was intrigued about that we've already kind of talked about a little bit is the role of followers in some of the church scandals that we've thought about recently that you guys um, reflect on in your book. And I think that's... Um, you know, in some ways, this this feels tricky to talk about because it can kind of feel like victim shaming or blaming. Um, but like, what is the role of like the organization that participates in um, some destructive controversy, whether it's a local church or a ministry like Ravi Zacharias's ministry? What does it mean in a situation like that to be a, a really good follower? And what does it mean to be a follower that's that's not glorifying to God, that's not helpful to the situation? And can you guys unpack that? Because I know you write about that in the book. I think it's a really helpful um, concept to keep our organizations healthy. Yeah. Um, Zach, just as you've mentioned that, you know, I think of a follower and the 
impact that they have. And sometimes we think primarily of the leader and then they have followers. But we, first of all, um, understand that the leader has to be a really good follower. Mm-hmm. And that 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 calling never stops, and that's right. essentially what we're going to be rewarded for. Um, but the impact of a, a let's say a follower giving deference to the leader, um, that follower has an impact on the leader, on other followers, and perhaps the other subordinates. So, as a follower, that follower needs to be able to, uh, and this is organizational wide, to be able to cultivate an atmosphere where conversations can occur mm-hmm. and it can start with the the peer relationship th- those kinds of conversations um you know rick's going to chime in here i know because you know uh what is it rick that you say you know uh, see something say something right um and that means you have to have you have to cultivate an environment a culture where saying something wrong or right needs to be said mm-hmm. uh easy or difficult it needs to be said and so that can start at any level it doesn't have to be a top down right um, if i'm i'm talking with wick and i might say hey can i share something with you I, i'm not quite sure if i'm theologically sound here i just need some input those kinds of conversations have to happen mm-hmm so i i think of the impact a person has in their sphere of influence and it goes it's multi-dimensional and multi uh, level yeah so the opposite would be just a group of people that sees things that are troubling never says anything to anyone in authority um and just keep your mouth shut keep your head down like that's a recipe for disaster in a in any organization right but sadly it happens it happens and for a variety of reasons that we could probably unpack but one of the reasons seems to be, well, so many good things are happening. And so ultimately it's pragmatism and the ends justify the means. And, yeah. and then, and then at a certain point, the, 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 um, uh, the means overweigh the ends. And then we have a crisis. Yes. I think an aspect of being a good follower, and you'll see this in the book is being really sensitive to the Holy spirit. And sometimes it's after the fact, when we say to ourselves, I knew I should have said something. Right. I, I should have done something. <laughs> right. Well, in all likelihood, it was the Holy Spirit saying, "Hey, you know what? Say something." Right. Something. Right. But right. we 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 disregard that. We you know we don't pay any attention to that. How how do we, this is again we're rabbit trails here, but I think this is an important part of the discussion. How does that? I, I feel like as a pastor, I want to, I really work hard to create a culture where we don't, um, we don't have a culture of gossip. Because there is, there's a way this can go crazy where it's like, see something, say something. Well, how do I know that what I'm seeing is, is actually accurate or worth saying And different personalities are going to handle that, that statement differently. Like, do you guys have thoughts about that? Well, you know, one thing that uh, I, I think, so I think you've accurately identified a real issue in a totally legitimate one. I would, I don't know how to assess if it's a bigger problem that people gossip or a big old problem that people see something but don't say something. Sure. I'm kind of like, I I don't yeah. know how to assess that one because they're both very common and they're both really problematic. Right. So I, I hate it when this happens, but I'm kind of like genuinely, this is a matter of prudential wisdom. Right. It's a matter of cultivating a set of 
of, of disciplines and kind of character qualities in your own heart where you do have a sensitivity to gossip. If you can't think back and say, when was the last time I was tempted to gossip? If you're completely and say, oh, that never touches me. I'm suspicious that you're just oblivious to your own soul sure, because it sure. is a thing. We get, you know, Facebook gives you likes. There's some other thing that's just like that, that gossip gives you from your friends that, you know, doesn't get codified right. on your social media. But it's a temptation for all of us. We feel privileged. We feel particularly wise. We feel like we had the information before others. So cultivating a genuine sensitivity of character. And this is one of the things that Joanne and I talked a lot about. And we had the whole chapter in the book about kind of the, the spiritual formation side of good followership, because it's a real job. And yeah, yeah, what you're asking for, I'm saying, no, that's a real need of wisdom. Right. So back to the thing of, can the follower just be passive? Are there skills of followership? I'll tell you right now, one of the, the top skills of followership I would identify is exactly that, that kind of prudence and wisdom to know when to speak right. and when to just exercise deference and right. when to go ahead and do fact checking, so to speak. Yeah, it, it's, it's one thing to say you always have to go vertical. Well, sometimes you're saying, did I hear that right? Is that what right. I heard? And you can right. you can talk to people in ways that are really seeking to just validate your own perception or you can do it in ways that seek to spread gossip. And, right. and you need to cultivate that kind of that kind of wisdom. Yeah. Well, it, it feels like wisdom to me that if I see something, what do I see? And can I go directly to the person that I see as opposed yeah. to talking? Like our, uh, One of the catchphrases at our church is we don't talk about people. We talk to people, yeah. Good. you know, and, and once in a while I might need to run it by my wife or or so, one of the elders or something like, am I? Maybe I'm. Maybe I shouldn't even go. Maybe this isn't something I need to say anything about because I'm. I'm not even sure where we're at. Like, do I need to say something or not? Can you help me think this through before I go to the person? And I don't really put that in the gossip category. I put that in maybe the wisdom category. But all of this has to do with what does it mean to have a healthy community? Yeah, you know. And that's what what I'm aiming for, and what you guys are really aiming for with being a good follower is such an important part of a healthy community. Yeah, I, you know, Zach, what you just uh, gave an example of is really healthy because um, in between the perhaps the two options that we have is in the middle. And this is exactly what you just did. You asked a question. When yeah. we frame things in the form of a question, it is uh, is more welcoming and it's right. not threatening. And right. in a sense, it is echoing what, what Rick said in terms of fact checking. So you what you want to do is still validate the person, not on Facebook, but right. you want to validate the person and say, help me understand. I don't understand. Help me. And then in that assessment, what we're able to do is validate truth. Did this person do their homework? Mm -hmm. Have they pursued um, uh, input other than themselves? I, I like to say, is it based on truth? Because as soon as you put the I in there, it becomes biased. And mm -hmm. so that's that wisdom part, discerning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you get it? The yes. B-A-S-E-D and the B-I-S-E-D. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, so to, to assess whether someone has done their homework, ask them questions. Yeah. And yep. you, you did exactly that, Zach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, 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 really, um, I really feel passionate about this um, for the sake of healthy communities. But I think so many of us haven't reflected on the role of followers. And, you know, I, I said to Rick before you joined us, um, 
Joanne, I've never heard someone say, um, I really aspire to be a great follower. You know what I mean? But you hear people say all the time, man, I aspire to be a great leader, you know, and I want to be a, a leader that, you know, whatever. Also, like you think about movies, like we don't have a, movies about great followers. All of our movies are transcendent, whether it's Braveheart or Gladiator or, or whatever, yeah. you have great leaders, you know, or Dis all the Disney movies. I'm going to, I'm going to blaze the trail yeah. of self-determination and, <laughs> and as a leader, yeah. you know. But let's let's take it back a like more of a thirty thousand foot view because I think it's good to lay a theological foundation for this, which you guys do so well in the book. What does just open ended? And you guys can answer this however you like. What does the Bible say about being a great follower? <laughs> I know there's a lot, but just however you want to yeah. answer that. There was a point in our book, and, and then I'm going to hand it off to Rick because he he uh, we helped uh, and he did a great job of unpacking uh, the Gospel of John. There was something that I wrestled with, Zach. I, I was wrestling with this. God got God gave me a thought, and that was um, that Jesus only did what he saw his Father doing. That's right. And it kept resonating with me, and I kept thinking, "Wait a minute, that means Jesus was a follower." Mm -hmm. So. Um, I, I then had enough courage to say, hey, Rick, you know, I don't know if I'm theologically right on this, but I think Jesus was a follower. And, and Rick took it and he says, you know, reading through the Gospel of John, you see this everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so if Jesus was a follower, well, then what are his disciples to be? Right. So, and, Rick? It, well, and I just add, you know, the, the first calling of Jesus to to the entire what became the entire christian church was follow me that's right and so i unless i'm really confused the first thing that all of christianity is born on is being a follower and who are we following where we're following jesus well what does jesus model for us well stunningly enough the first thing he models for us is good followership that's right because as joanne mentioned it was just nuts as i began to work through the gospel of john i'm like this is everywhere. He's not giving the teaching that he thought of, but rather the teaching that he heard. He's not obeying, giving the commandments. He's obeying the commandments. He didn't choose the time he was sent at a time. Um, you know, the, the people he gets weren't people he recruited, but they were given him by the Father. You just see all of the things that kind of we would associate with being the follower, not the leader. Right. Being things that Jesus is identifying about himself. And so we're following a follower who's, and I want to be clear here that I am referring to the incarnate Christ, not the eternal second person of the Trinity here. Right. But Jesus, in terms of what he was modeling for us in his incarnation, it was exactly this God-focused sense of followership that directed all the things he did that often obviously include a massive amount of leadership. But it was a leadership that was born of faithful following that he wanted to pass on to others who would teach other faithful men so that they might, you know, be able to follow likewise. So you have this great chain of followership as you go through the New Testament that kind of circles the entire Mediterranean world um, where, well, I'm following Paul, who was following Jesus, who was following right. the Father. Right. Well, I'm following Timothy, who was following Paul. <laughs> You're right. like, man, this goes on for a long time. And I'm like, well, yeah, it goes all the way to us, right? That That's how it would be great if we just viewed this, as if we're looking backwards through 2,000 years of church history on this incredibly long chain of follow the leader. 
um, where all we really get to see who's right in front of us. But we know that person had followed someone who'd followed someone who ultimately goes back. And we have the benefit, of course, of scripture as well. So we get kind of some, you know, report from the front of following uh, right. the New Testament. Right. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, I think of the metaphor of the sheep and a shepherd. It's just so rich in the Gospels um, and other places. And I remember I, I, I was a religion major in undergrad and at a secular school. And one of my favorite professors was very provocative. Um, and he liked to poke holes at the naive theological <laughs> foundations of little freshmen like me in 1994. And I remember him saying one time in, in class, because, you know, he, in, in Iowa, it's like a lot of Christian kids at that time. You know, that's where I went to northern Iowa. And he said one day in class as we're talking about something theological from Christianity, he said, you guys know that sheep are the dumbest of all animals. And he just kind of just said it and I'll never forget it. And I think he was just trying to be provocative, but how would you guys respond to that? Um, like, yeah, (laughs) please inform us, Uh, Dr. Jung. Uh, oh, please call me Joanne. Okay. Um, um, you First of all, you have to know that everyone close to me knows that I love sheep. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a family stay with us and their kids counted the number of sheep that I have in the house and it was over 130. So <laughs> wow. I like them for that reason, Zach. It's because they are so very stupid. And <laughs> if I do a, a really good, accurate assessment of myself, um, I am pretty stupid, dumb, and I don't follow well. However... What's redeeming is in in John, the sheep know my voice. Mm-hmm. So as dumb as they are, they will follow the shepherd. They know the shepherd's voice. And I go, you know what? That's following. Yep. So I don't mind being a sheep. I don't mind being labeled yeah. as you know as dumb because I know the shepherd's voice. That's following well. Yeah. Do I and, know the shepherd's voice? Yeah. Yeah. And and John ten is explicit about the fact. They don't listen to the voice of this guy who climbed over the sheepfold. They don't listen to this brigand. Like, I don't know yeah. who that guy is, but I'm not following him. And this is what I mean about kind of this crystal clear sense of division that the sheep, the followers are supposed to have, such that if the leader starts to go off the rails, the followers are going, I don't think so. That's not a trip I'm taking. And I, yeah, we, we have this little short section in there for all fans of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, where we talk about puddle glum is like the quintessential follower on that count. And you can call him simple-minded and dull or whatever, mm-hmm. but boy, the old green witch starts talking and blowing this stuff out about, well, you know, Aslan's just, you know, make-believe and this isn't real and all that. And Puddle Glum's listening to all this and he's just like, I don't know what she's talking about, but that's just a load of, I don't know what. And he, right. you know, stamps on the fire and he basically calls her out and says, you're probably right. I can't, I can't win the argument with you. But all I know is what you're talking about is not the place where I'm going. And that to me is like the perfect model of the, on the one hand, sort of the dumb, unimpressive side of the sheep, which Puddle Glum was. But on the other hand, the sense of, yeah, you know what? Don't complicate the issue with the fog you're blowing, honey, because that's, that's not where I'm going. And if I'm wrong, I'd rather die being wrong than live following what you're giving me. Yeah. So it's a pretty robust version of not that bright, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, and I just love the, the 
I mean, you could frame it that way. Sheep are the dumbest of all animals. Or you could frame it like sheep need a leader. They need yeah. to be led. And and if I'm honest with myself, you know, you, you live long enough, you know, you know, when you're young, you, you feel invincible. But the longer you live and the more suffering you endure, the more that sounds really good. Like, yeah, I do need a leader. I, I don't have these invincible powers of self-determination. Um, yeah. I, that's just not me. And uh, I do need a leader. And Jesus comes in and says, follow me. And there's something smart about that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's one right. of the things that I I think the idea of calling sheep dumb it has virtues and vices because I do right. think it misses a lot of things about sheep. And one of them, what you're just saying is that, look, the sheep just knows it needs a leader. Right. Well, that puts them way ahead of the person who doesn't know they lead a leader, but they really do. Right. So kudos to the sheep yeah. for both knowing the leader and then treating the leader with enough respect that they become followers, not just people who wave the leader goodbye. Yep. Are, are there other things from the scriptures that come to mind for you guys about, um, being a good follower. I, let me ask it like this. I think a lot of us nod our head. Yes. When we say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus and I can uh, assent to that, you know, as a, in some ways it's kind of an abstract concept for some people. Like you put on your, your, um, Facebook profile or your Instagram profile, Jesus follower or whatever. Yeah. And most people are willing to do that. But when it comes to being a good follower among other human organizations, whether it's in marriage or family or, or, uh, at work or in the church or in the neighborhood or, you know, civic responsibilities, what is the, are the things that come to mind in terms of what the Bible says about being a good follower in other ways? Well, I think being a good follower, um, ultimately, if uh, as we are growing more and more sensitive to the spirit, it doesn't categorize us. We're not compartmentalized. Yeah. It becomes very integrated. So, uh, Zach, as you had mentioned, it's uh, does it impact, does my followership and my following well impact my marriage, my relationship with my husband and my children? How about uh, the community that I live in? How about the marketplace where I I work or how about and I we have the story in the book um, when I'm in the market how does my followership impact uh, my relationship with the cashier mm-hmm. and it does, I, just this morning I don't know in Wisconsin if you have a Trader Joe's oh yeah uh, okay they have really good prices on eggs right now so they're, <laughs> they're in Madison Madison isn't really Wisconsin it's sort yeah. of the third <laughs> world right yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly so I was uh, I was checking out and the guy says, you know, you're really, you're really nice. I, he, he did this funny thing uh, to me and uh, he said, you're, you're really nice. Um, and I said to him, well, you know, how you engage with people as I observed him, the, the spirit let me see how you engage with, engage with other people. And I said, you know, you, you are a blessing to other people far beyond what you can see. Hmm. And he said, well, that's really nice of you to say, but you know, we might as well, cause I'm just going to die, you know, I, I'm just going to die. I'm just going to, you know, uh, you're going to die. I'm going to die. Males, females, you know. And the guy behind me in line was apparently from India. And he goes, yeah, people in India, they're going to die. And uh, and he said, this other customer said, and I'm going to be reincarnated. Um, and then uh, the, the cashier says, well, no, I'm just going to die. And I took that moment and I said, you know what? I'm going to live forever. Hmm. 
I didn't preach it. I just said, here's just something to think about. And so it was just a moment as we felt just, you know, I, I didn't give a sermon. I didn't give a class lesson. It was like, this is truth. Mm-hmm. And it was time for me to leave. So you just, wherever you are, it's just so integrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether there are people you know and love, people that you kind of know and love, people that you don't even know. I had to ask this man, you know, I, I said, what's your name? And he said, Michael. And I, and I said, okay, next time I come in, I'm going to look for you, Michael. That's so beautiful. You them, uh, by, by their names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to pick up on what Joanne was saying there in terms of other things in the New Testament, you know, just stop and think for a minute about all these, you know, what they call the household tables in the New Testament, where you're giving all these directions for for a a household. Right. And you think about this and go, oh, yeah, everybody in the household is being described one way or another as a follower. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. the, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband. Well, that sounds like partnership. Well, the husband is supposed to both sacrifice for his wife, but also submit to Jesus. And that's right. The, the kids are supposed to submit to their parents, but the parents are under Jesus and they shouldn't be, you know, frustrating or embittering their kids and right. the master and the slave. Hey, you know, slaves obey your masters, but at the same time, masters realize you have a master in heaven and th- it becomes, once you have eyes to see it, you realize this followership becomes this pervasive in the language of the New Testament. All of the in you, with you language that we have in Christ, in a sense, is like the highest level of followership language, because you're saying, I'm just going to live in Christ. Right. This is where I I belong and find my home. So it's it becomes a thing you kind of begin to see everywhere. Yeah, yeah I think, I- oh, go ahead. And, and through those epistles, what we find is what precedes the imperatives, you know, things that we're supposed to do. What generally precedes that is the indicative. It's the being part. The being part always precedes the doing part. So what is that being part? It's exactly what Rick had said. It's being in Christ. It's having this relationship. It's being empowered by his spirit um, and being sensitive to how the spirit moves in our lives. Those nudges are those, uh, those, those still small voices. Uh, voice that we hear. And so those are things that we live in, uh, in being in Christ, and then it shows up with the imperatives. Therefore, the imperatives make sense. Of course, you can do this because of your... You're preaching my, preaching from my script there, Dr. Dr. Jung. Um, We talk about indicatives and imperatives a lot, and I love how the scripture does highlight that so well. of being informing doing and not the other way around. Um, we could talk about that for a long time. Well, let me, let me close with one question and I, I'm just curious cause I, I try to help our people think more globally that, um, there can be, um, a, an American exceptionalism. Uh, there can be an, an kind of a arrogance that can come with being an American. Uh, we think we're the best game in town, but God is a God of the nations. Um, so I'd like to th- help them think like, um, globally and, and along those lines, thinking globally, is there something about American culture that tends to elevate leadership to a place where it shouldn't be that you guys kind of de- deconstruct in your book? And is that a, is this an American phenomenon 
or is, do you feel like this is yeah. a global a global thing in some ways, or are there different cultures handle leaders, followers differently that we can learn from, or just pay attention to? I just think it's an interesting question. I I would say that I think we have a uniquely strong version of what's probably a bit of a universal human affliction, right? I mean, sure. to an extent, you see this acted out in the Garden of Eden. Right. Where Adam and Eve suddenly decided, hey, you know, this following God thing doesn't really sound that great. Let me just go my own way. So, yeah, this is part of the human flight, plight. But I really do think Americans have the disease in excess. My guess is Romans probably had that disease in excess in ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. Because we not only, I think most countries have a bit of a feeling that we're the best country in the world. I remember being in, I, I lived in India for a while, lived in Germany for a while. And in both cases, I was quickly confronted by the fact that their self-perception of their country was pretty darn special, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, America has that normal tendency compounded by the fact that we sort of are the superpower of the world at this moment. Mm -hmm. Most of us has grown up at the very least in a time where that was a pretty plausible way to think about the country. So I think, you know, that contributes to it. I think it's also a bit of, um, I think, I think there are things that are a bit unusual about America in terms of it's a country that people have come to with an aspiration mm-hmm. by and large. You know, it mm-hmm. is a country of, of, of immigrants uh, and it's uncanny when you start to do that and compare notes. I mean, I have these meetings with faculty and we'll start telling backstories and you realize, man, I've got, I've got eight people in this room and seven of them are at least children of first generation immigrants. Yeah. And you realize we, we are a country people come to, and it takes a lot of gumption to get up and move to another country. So I think we select for people who are kind of willing to go out, just kind of our gene pool artificially gets, gets drawn that way. Mm -hmm. And for whatever the other reasons we celebrate leaders, all the things we identified kind of in the introduction to the book where we really do talk about a culture obsessed with leadership. I'm saying, you know, we're doing it, whatever that may be, we really have it. And I do think there's some kind of background issues that do contribute to kind of helping us double down on what might be a general problem anyhow. Hmm. Yeah. I think for many, um, many countries, uh, America serves as a model in so many ways. So uh, they will welcome Americans. They will welcome yeah. American businessmen. They will um, welcome American biz- uh, companies. Sure. Uh, and with that, they import uh, leadership, mm-hmm. and so it kind of spreads, kind of multiplies, kind of you know propagates that way. Um, and so it's it's a pre-existing situation. I think our um, penchant for leadership uh, to be exalted gets exported quite easily. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important just to think about um, this through the lens of of a of a global God being a global God and a God of the nations. And if we can identify, um, is this uniquely American? Why? Or is this a universal trait for all human beings? Why? Where's the overlap? So that's really helpful. Well, Dr. Langer, Dr. Jung, I really, really appreciate you guys giving us time. Um, I really hope that your book sells thousands if not millions of copies um, because this concept is, is beautiful and it needs to be more emphasized and it's obviously richly biblical and so thank you so much for giving your time to a group of believers in madison wisconsin and um, hope to uh, see more publishing from you guys in the future 
Thank, Thank you, Zach. You. It's a privilege to be able to do it. Okay. Yes. Thank you.